Hello, Shakerites, and welcome to the penultimate episode of Little Fires Everywhere, the official podcast. If you're listening to this podcast after watching episode 107 of the show, how is everybody doing? No matter which character you're rooting for, there is so much going on right now. I am personally feeling a lot, and there's only one more episode of Little Fires Everywhere left to tie up all the loose ends and resolve everything that needs resolving. What's going to happen between Elena and Mia, or to the Shaker Heights teens, or Linda and Bibi, and of course, the biggest question of all, who burned the house down? Who set the little fires? Now, I can't spoil anything, of course, but I can do what I always do, which is bring you behind the scenes of the show to hear from the actors, writers, and wait for it, twist this week. On this episode, we are speaking with the therapist, Leslie Johnson, MFT, who consulted on Little Fires Everywhere, particularly on the adoption issues tackled in the series. We're going to speak with the writer for episode 107, Harris Danow. But first, this is a conversation with Lexi Underwood, who plays Pearl, Jade Pettyjohn, who plays Lexi, not confusing at all, Megan Stott, who plays Izzy, Jordan Elsass, who plays Trip, and Gavin Lewis, who plays Moody. They've got a lot of great stuff to say, so let's take a listen to our conversation. I'm Jade Pettyjohn, and I play Lexi Richardson. I'm Gavin Lewis, and I play Moody Richardson. I am Megan Stott, and I play Izzy Richardson. Hi, I'm Lexi Underwood, and I play Pearl Warren. Hi, I'm Jordan Elsass, and I play Trip Richardson. For everyone here who is very young, what was your knowledge of 90s culture before you jumped into this project? Was it was anyone into it? Was there a lot of, wait, what is this? I definitely had some familiarity with the 90s music, but okay. there were other elements that I had never watched or seen before. There was an ep- there was a scene, I think, in the first or second episode where Liz had us improv our, our thoughts on real world, and none of us had watched it before. I knew I knew little to nothing about 90s culture, actually. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had a, a gist of the music, you know, it comes up occasionally, and you listen to the radio, but... I, I knew practically nothing I did all of my research after getting the show and found out 90s culture is actually a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't know anything. So not only are you sort of like existing in this world that is full of 90s culture and references, you also had to put yourself in the character mindset of someone who would be your age 20 to 30 years ago at this point. What was your process for for each of you in not just preparing for a role, but trying to like put yourself in a specific place in time? I think it helped that we had a book to play off of. Mm -hmm. I think that was really helpful for me at least because you get to hear your character's narrative written for you. Mm -hmm. And Shaker Heights is really interesting that it's it's it takes place in the nineties, which is, you know, definitely much more regressive, but it's also in an environment that's so insulated from the rest of the world. And so being able to create what that would feel like and create that mentality and a lot of that is um, built off of the conversations that we all were able to freely have. Yeah, it it felt like a really safe place to sort of explore, uh, you know, the arcs of of our characters and just kind of like play around with it. And I didn't feel bound to anything from the beginning. I felt like I could, like, like Jade was saying, I felt like I could have conversations with whoever I needed to. And if I wasn't educated, I could get educated. And that was the beauty of of, uh, the whole team. Well, for me, at least tapping into the character of Pearl and like really trying to like get in that mindset and relate to her, 
um, I made a playlist for her um, of what songs I think that she would uh, listen to. And I had different playlists for like different occasions and for different episodes. So I had like a playlist of what she would listen to while she's, you know, on her way to school and what she would listen to while she's getting ready for the school dance. Um, so that helped. And then I also had a little journal for her and I would do like daily logs when it come when it came to um, every episode for me. The biggest thing was probably just the authentic black mother and daughter relationship that Carrie and I created, because the first thing that you see um, in me and Pearl's world is an encounter with the police. And I think that especially a lot of black teenagers can look at that and can relate to that. I know even when I was like 13, 14, I had to have that conversation with my mom, too. I think, honestly, no matter what race you are, even if, you know, we're in the in 2020 i feel like you can you can relate to some character in the show absolutely because this show tackles so many issues that are still very very relevant today were there any conversations that kind of stick out to you of you know i i'm so glad i was able to have this conversation were there any conversations that were kind of tougher to approach i think because Izzy's such a complicated character, we had Liz and I had a lot of conversations about her sexuality and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we had to talk like about what she was feeling. It was nice to have conversations with her because she's one of the writers and she herself is married <laughs> to a beautiful woman and she has a beautiful son. But to have that conversation, it was like you got to really dive into what it was like for her and what it translated to Izzy because she was a young girl trying to figure out who she was and Izzy's just trying to find out who she is and we had several conversations where we cried a lot about Mm -hmm. life in that time Mm -hmm. and I thought it was really special that we had to have those deep conversations that really stood out to me and helped create the role of Izzy. Yeah and you acted it so beautifully it was so cool especially because that's material that wasn't in the book. Mm-mm. So were you, did everyone read the book before production started? Mm-hmm. I, I read once it. Once I found out it was being produced, I started there. reading it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's funny is I actually decided to read it after. I, oh. wanted to, I, I, I wanted to sort of bring my own take to the character and just go based off the scripts because I noticed, uh, you know, there are some discrepancies between the book and TV shows usually. Sure. And I didn't really want to know. The, the differences. I just wanted to go with it. Yeah, absolutely. So this one's for Jade and Lexi. Watching Pearl and Lexi was that by the, was that confusing? Yes, <laughs> yes, we that was okay. so confusing, <laughs> brutal. <laughs> okay, so so character wise, Lexi meaning Jade and Pearl meaning Lexi have this very complicated friendship, and I'm curious about how you I guess prepared for that portion of the role. Where I mean, we have. Lexi, meaning Jade's character, acting out some pretty severe microaggressions and then aggressions towards Pearl and also maintaining this friendship where Pearl is able to support her through the abortion narrative. So, I mean, that's a lot going on. How did you prepare for that Mm -hmm. um, individually and together? The first time I read that, um, that scene, especially where they're in the dressing room, and um, Lexi is talking to Pearl. Um, I don't see it really. It's not a friendship. It's Lexi's manipulating Pearl. And especially when she takes the when she takes advantage of Pearl with the story and even with abortion, I feel like it's 
honestly, at the end of the day, I feel like it's kind of racism. But Jade and I on set, we were like so cool. It was super weird to like act out those scenes because like we're so <laughs> cool. But Jade absolutely killed it. But Aww. I don't I don't necessarily I don't necessarily know if it has if it's a friendship. I think it's more of just like a one sided manipulation of Lexi seeing Pearl as a pawn so she can get what she wants at the end of the day. I completely agree with you, Lexi. And and it's it's definitely an interesting thing when you have a lot of love and admiration for the other actor mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to suddenly turn around and, and play something that's so divided. You know what I mean? And I think that approaching a character that is so morally gray, Mm -hmm. you know, it's such an age old saying amongst actors to never judge the character, your character, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're not able to actually play it authentically because no one really believes themselves that they're wrong inherently, you know? Right. Um, And that was hard for me to look at because you look at the page and you're like, oh, my God, this is so heartbreaking. And she's just nullifying the other individual you know what I mean whether she's aware of it or not she is and and so for me it it took a lot of like okay I need to understand how she got to a point of of uh, completely lost empathy this next question is for Gavin and Jordan sort of going off of some changes made from the book I think that both of your characters are portraying a very specific kind of masculinity that is maybe let's say toxic Mm-hmm. So are these traits that you had recognized previously, whether it be in your friends, family, yourself, and then and what is the experience like kind of acting that out and being the asshole? <laughs> I mean, it's just a lot of observing. Like, I played a brother. I'm an only child. Um, so it's a lot of, of just watching. It was a toxic person that I think he believed Pearl owed him for... Um, he sort of gave her what he felt like was enough to deserve a relationship. And preparing for that was just a lot of watching. Like, there's a lot of that in society today still. There shouldn't be, but there is. I would agree with that, I think. And I think what's what's cool about it, too, is that it was, like you said, two totally different kinds of, of toxic masculinity. And it starts out as though Moody is sort of the good kid with the good heart. And then it sort of flips as you get further on. And it's like, oh, well, maybe Trip actually is, is the good guy. And then Moody starts to sort of become this like more frowned upon, but you feel bad for him at the same time. Both of them are in the wrong in a lot of ways. And I think that Trip starts to sort of uh, figure out that there's more to him than the label that's been placed on him, which is sort of this like player, gets all the girls, but like breaks their hearts and doesn't really care about their feelings, doesn't desire these personal relationships with with uh, girls and sort of treats women as if they are objects, which obviously you see loads of today. Uh, it's perpetuated in our culture and it's it's really ingrained in our culture, unfortunately. Gavin, you sort of alluded to it being an only child and all of a sudden having three TV siblings. Building out, I think for the Richardsons and the Warrens, very realistic, grounded feeling TV families and TV families that don't feel like TV families. So I wanted to ask both representatives from both families how those relationships were built. Lexi, let's start mm-hmm. with you and building the relationship between Mia and Pearl. What was that process like for you and Carrie? Like at the very beginning of filming, she took me out for lunch and we sat down and we actually had a conversation about how we were going to play the authentic relationship of a Black mother and daughter. Because in the book, you know, me and Pearl aren't Black or you don't necessarily know their race. Mm -hmm. So for us, we knew that we had to 
we knew what we had to do, that we had to really take on that job of making sure that it was, you know, authentic. So for building the Richardson family mm-hmm. dynamic with Reese and Joshua Jackson and all of you, I mean, are so convincingly like the way you would interact. You're like, oh, I do that with my brother all the time. <laughs> so what was building that family dynamic like? We were able to go and we were able to like go bowling. and We had events where we were able to build those relationships in a conducive way where it wasn't like we were stressed about it. We weren't like just doing it on set. We had times where we could really get to know each other and know what our interests were. Yeah, I think like Megan is saying, it's a lot of it's just spending time together. And on top of that, I feel like we had really good chemistry in real life, too. I don't know if I'm just speaking yes. for myself. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so true. I agree. No, I agree. Yeah, it, everybody just got along really well, which I think translates really well to the on-screen chemistry. Um, so it was just a really nice cast. Thank you all so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Of course. (laughs) Thank you again to Lexi Underwood, Jade Pettyjohn, Megan Stott, Gavin Lewis, Jordan Elsass for sitting down with me. And I think I speak for everyone when I say respect. It is not just any cast that can bring this level of performance opposite Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon. And the cast absolutely destroys And the material that they're performing is no joke either. Both author Celeste Ng and the Little Fires Everywhere Writers Room tackle every conceivable issue in the world of this story. So to hear a little bit about writing episode 107 and building that tension between Mia and Elena to a climax, I got to speak to writer Harris Danow. Let's hear some of the conversation. I'm Harris Danow, and I was a producer on the show, and I wrote episode seven, Picture Perfect. So when this episode airs, people will have, in theory, just watched it. And if you haven't watched it, spoiler alert. Um, So when you were writing this, were there specific parts that you're like, oh, I can't wait to write this scene? Were there scenes where you're like, oh, I'm kind of nervous? How do I approach this? Or Mm -hmm. yeah, what was your mindset going into it? I think I was really excited to write that. Reese and Carrie bathroom scene Mm -hmm. that happens early in the episode um, because they hadn't had screen time together, I think, for a couple of episodes until that moment. And while that's a great scene and I'm proud of how it came out, um, there were other scenes that I wasn't thinking of quite that way that when I watch the episode now are are much more meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. When thinking about the episode, I wasn't really thinking about Izzy all that much. Mm -hmm. But when I watch the episode now, she's it's such a huge episode for her yeah and and um i don't know i'm very proud about how her scenes came out oh i mean it it yeah it's it's written incredibly well she performs the hell out of it megan like kills it like yeah yeah it's that whole i mean i think people will definitely have a lot to say about um izzy's storyline in this episode it's really exciting so I, I wanted to ask you specifically, because this is a show that centers around women's stories and a lot of different types of women and the themes of motherhood, but behind all of that and sort of subtly influencing some of that is the show's concept and approach to masculinity, which I feel like comes out mostly through the Richardson men, where you've got, you know, Josh Jackson as Bill, and then you've got Moody and Tripp as well. And um, all three of them had their characters pretty significantly deepened and explored in the show. And so I'm curious about, I guess, your experience with that specifically. Uh, and and then also just what were those conversations like in the room of 
finding, okay, what do we want Bill's character to be saying? Because he doesn't do too much in the book. Right. Or... Yeah. There were conversations. I think about Bill in particular. And I think in the next episode, when you watch the finale, you really get, um, I, I think, how we've thought about Bill's relationship with Elena as a husband, as a man, really comes out in the next episode. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited for people to see that. But we were very much aware of, uh, especially... I'm going to speak about Bill in particular, this being a show about women and mothers and wives. It's like, what is a man's role in this? And yeah. and I think you can watch Bill um, through everything you've seen so far, and he's kind of takes a hands-off approach to anything. It's kind of like, Elena, this is your problem, and like, I'll, I do my part, but, you know, I let you make all the decisions. He can kind of like wash his hands of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Elena, I can you can be the crazy one, and I can be the same one, even though you're doing 99% of the work here. Right. Um, and I'm very much aware of that. There's a scene you talk about in the writer's roundtable that you wrote that I eventually got cut out uh, that it seems was pretty well-loved in the room. Uh, what, what was that scene? There was a scene of Bill going to pick up Izzy, and he has this moment with um, Mia where th- she's basically thanking him in a way. I don't think she says the words thank you, but she, there's this realization um, you know, that you had, you could have destroyed me um, by bringing up this, my past that um, that I've been so desperately keeping secret and you decided not to and why. And um, I think it was like, you don't have too many moments between Bill and Mia. Um, and I think that's why I, I missed it. And it wasn't, it, I, what I think like Bill says something to the effect of, it doesn't matter, we're going to win anyway. But also this acknowledging that, you know, Ruining your life isn't going to make my life better. And besides, we were going to win. I didn't need to do it. But um, I don't know. I thought it was a nice moment between the two of them. But I totally, totally understand why they had to take it out. There's no room. And then my last question is about Moody. And I really, really, really liked the direction that y'all chose to go with him with kind of challenging, I think, a stereotype that is very well recognized of like the good guy gets the girl and in in this story, where at this point we know that, you know, Pearl is not interested in him mm-hmm. in that way, and seeing the retaliation that takes place, uh, where where did that come from? Well, I think, it, I mean, it's in the book. It's, yeah. It's, it's very much in the book, but we were totally aware of that. And listen, the truth is that I probably related most of all the characters to Izzy and to Moody, but to Moody in particular. So I, I because I feel like I was that guy, um, I don't think I was quite as... Um, I didn't think I did all the things that Moody did, um, which you will see. Just just that mentality. And I think it was very important for us to, to for everyone to feel like they're really rooting for Moody and to see what happens when um, a boy like that doesn't get his way and the way right. he responds. And um, yeah, absolutely. There's a sense of entitlement going on there. Yeah. Um, you owe me. I've been, I've been so good to you. I've been so nice to you. To the point where I feel like even audiences are kind of conditioned to be like, oh, of course Pearl has to go with yeah. him when it's like, well, no, what does she want, you know? Yeah, and it's and it's like, you know, um, he's entitled to be upset about it. I mean, who wouldn't be? But, right. But but how do you take that out on the other person, I think, is, is the question. How do men take it out on women who reject them? Um, Ex- yes, yeah. which is like a fascinating discussion that we don't see happen enough with people that you would see in the normal world. It's usually, you know, like this big looming villain that no one's ever actually met. And this is like, no, this is a kid that you have known 
Um, and yeah, just seeing that play out was really. Yeah. And if you think about sort of, you know, for the hundred years now or whatever, uh, particularly when I'm thinking about the movies that I watched growing up, they were all written, almost entirely all written by guys like me who were probably like pretty nerdy or certainly wasn't the guy who was um, attracting all the girls in high school. And mm-hmm. so, so many stories we've been conditioned to watch about like these boys who who are just these underdog sweethearts who are trying to get with, you know, the the popular girl. And mm-hmm. and in the end, she sees him for the prince that he really is. And it's weird revisionist history. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's all, it's all like, it's all nerd white boy um, wish fulfillment. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I'm glad that you said that. I hadn't thought about it in a while, but we were very much aware of um, how Moody was going to react. And again, it was in Celeste's book. She, she handles it. She made a beautiful point there. Chris, thank you so much for coming in and, and for talking with us. This yeah, yeah, I love talking. Thanks so much to Harris Dano for his time and for the wonderful episode. So to round out our podcast episode, exploring the depths of Little Fires Everywhere this week, I got to speak to a very unique consultant who worked on the show. Leslie Johnson, MFT, is an L.A. area marriage and family therapist who specializes in working with families on all sides of adoption as well as children who have been adopted. And if you've seen the show, you know this made her invaluable in expanding on the storyline following Bibi Chow, her daughter Mei Ling, and adoptive mother Linda McCullough and the politics of adopting across race and class lines in the 1990s, as Leslie has worked with people on every side of this issue. And I got a chance to have a conversation with her about the process of bringing her knowledge into the series recently. So let's take a listen. We are joined right now by Leslie Johnson. Welcome. Thank you. So Leslie, how long have you been working in this field? I've been a licensed therapist since 2003. So how did this project end up coming to you? So I was contacted by Liz, and she reached out specifically to ask me to comment on some of the adoption-related themes in Little Fires. So have, have you worked with clients who were adopted or were adoptive parents um, in the past? Many, many clients. That's probably 75% of my clientele is um, people who were adopted, adults, mm-hmm. kids, teenagers. Um, I work with adoptive parents, prospective adoptive parents. I also work with first parents or biological parents, depending on the term you want to use. Mm-hmm. And so I felt very um, able to offer offer some changes and, and some yeah. insight into the experience. Um, I myself was adopted, so I can oh, I could definitely lend some of that uh, experience as well. Um, and in the book, um, I guess, where did you, what is your gut instinct if you're, if you're the judge in the mailing case? So that's a really good question. I tend to, to be, try to be very child-centric. So what is in the best interest of the child? And I think that if there's a way to look at adoption as rather not, not, not an either or, but more of a both and. So a child who was adopted has two sets of parents, right? So if I can help in my work, adoptive parents understand that and see that and accept that they're then going to be their child's best advocate. Have you ever encountered a situation that was similar to BB's where a biological parent was or a first parent was trying to establish a relationship with an adopted with a child that had been adopted? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think part of it is, and again, I'm speaking very generally, but mm-hmm. that 
people make decisions, um, you know, in out of desperation a lot of times where they're not, where they don't believe they have the tools or the resources to parent and they make a decision. I definitely am not anti-adoption, um, but I think that it's just more complex than than looking at it as, you know, someone did something bad by giving up their child. Absolutely. Another theme that is kind of effectively expanded on is the role of where race and class factor into this adoption process. And uh, particularly with class where, you know, BB's character was so destitute and did have so few options when she chose to give up mailing that it's very understandable that that's the choice that she would make. And then the question being, now that, you know, she has more options and more of a support system, have you found that it can be a positive thing for an adopted child to have a relationship with both sets of parents? Um, Absolutely. So again, if we're thinking about it from the child's perspective, Mm -hmm. when when it's healthy and when it's um, safe for them to have their, know their biology and know their um, biological roots and information, I think it's in the best interest of the child because what I've found is that it frees up so much bandwidth. So, you know, very, very short example is a little uh, family that I worked with who had a, a child that was six and was brought in because he was having uh, a lot of trouble in school. And when I asked the parents how they talked to him about adoption, they they insisted that this had nothing to do with adoption. It was just he was having, you know, he was having issues in school and they really wanted help to figure that out. And when they brought him in to see me, so I met with the parents first, but when they brought him in to see me, um, he knew that I was adopted and and I asked him if he knew I was there. And he said he was there to, you know, work on issues in school but I asked him to talk to me. He said, well, I know you're, you were adopted. And I said, I was adopted. And I know you were adopted. I said, tell me about that. So I said, tell me about that. I didn't specify anything else. And he said, well, I think about her when I wake up in the morning. I think about her when I'm getting ready for school. He goes, I don't think about her too much at school, but I always think about her right before I go to bed. Mm-hmm. And the parents were flabbergasted because they didn't think – he, you know, they didn't think he was was even on his mind. And so once they started talking about it, it really cleared up and cleared out a lot of space for him to just be. That's wonderful. Also speaking to the way that Mailing's adoption isn't just across class boundaries, it's also across race lines. Um, have you dealt with clients that that's the situation? Yes, absolutely. So when I work with parents and I do a lot of parent coaching, um, I think it is really important. Um, there's two pieces to it that I think that stand out is same race or in race adoption allows parents to maybe not talk about it as much because it's not as obvious. Um, Transracial adoption um, makes it a little bit more obvious um, to have those conversations. And I think it's important for the parents to be to be educated and to be um, very mindful of that. They have a child that's from a different culture. Um, you know, a lot of times people say, and I and I know this was part of it, at least in the scripts that I read, mm-hmm. was, you know, the adoptive parents, uh, Mark and Linda, saying, we don't see race. Right. To me, when I hear that, I guess as I'm sitting here as a white person, and I know that I hold that privilege, but mm-hmm. to say we don't see race to me is saying we don't see you. Yeah. Um. So I think it's really important for parents to be educated, not only about racial difference, but about just their their child's birth country. I wanted to shift a little and talk about Mark and Linda. 
I feel like Mark and Linda are very much products of their time. You just mentioned a refusal or not even recognizing that it would be important to educate themselves on on Mailing's culture and her origin. How would you have advised them if you had been their therapist? You know, part of the language I often help uh, parents with the language around adoption and and you know using um, this idea that that choosing to form a family by uh, by adoption is not you know adopting a child is not a substitute for a child who's died or um, miscarriage. It's another way to form a family. And so if you go into it that way, um, there's it, it's much healthier. So, Leslie, for people who have seen the show and want to educate themselves on adoption more, um, where would you direct them for a good resource? There's a great podcast called Adoptees On. That's uh, become a really lovely resource. And I have a website called askadoption.com. There are some resources that are growing, um, but again, there's still so much room for growth. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for sitting with us. Great. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course. Thank you again to Leslie Johnson for the interview and for all the amazing work that you do. And that is going to do it for this episode of Little Fires Everywhere, the official podcast. And much like the series itself, it is the next to last episode. So tune into the podcast next week for one last action-packed, drama-laden episode looking behind the scenes of the show. And tune into the final episode of Little Fires Everywhere, the series, where all will be revealed and true fans will be tweeting their reactions late into the night. Until then, I'm your host, Jamie Loftus. Follow Little Fires Everywhere on all social platforms at Little Fires Hulu. And try not to set any fires this week. See you next week. <laughs>